Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 113 for July the 19th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and as always, my co-host is here with me, Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. Good to have you, and uh, I'm, I'm traveling this week, so we've had a little bit of logistical difficulties in getting together, but uh, I'm glad we are sticking with our pretty consistent uh, every other week schedule of the Chat Chat, and hopefully our, our listeners are appreciative that throughout the summertime, when there's often not a lot of security news to cover, that we're staying on top of things and making sure people stay informed. Not a lot of security news. I think this week gives the lie to that, Chester. There's been quite some exciting stuff going on, hasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the biggest thing that I keep hearing about over and over again is this Android security problem. Uh, uh, Ooh, the master keys. Yeah, the, the master keys, uh, you know, black hat presentation. So there's lots of journalists getting press releases about, you know, how the master keys for Android have been stolen. And it's all going to be disclosed in a week and a half in Las Vegas in the desert at Black Hat. Um, and of course, right on the heels of that, there was some other stories saying there was another cryptographic uh, application security problem with Android that was discovered by some Chinese researchers. So, you know, do we panic? I mean, do we take our Android phones and trade them in for a new iPhone S? I mean, what's, what's the scoop? Well, this must be very embarrassing for Google's coders, let's be honest, because they've made two blunders that have allowed two different attacks that work in a similar way. Uh, basically, these attackers have found a way to create an Android package, an APK file, which is just a, a zip file at heart, that contains two copies of the compiled bytecode, one of which will be extracted from the APK file when Google does the cryptographic verification, and the other of which will be extracted when it comes to install time to install and run the software. So they've basically created two-faced APKs, and the reason for that is that Google only does the cryptographic verification on the files after they've been extracted from the archive. The problem is that everything might not be the same because you can play around with the metadata in the file in such a way that creates one of these two tricks. The one that's being called the master keys attack, where you just have two files with the same name in the archive. And the other that I'm calling the extra field attack, where you add in some metadata and make use of a signed-unsigned integer flaw in the Android zip parsing code. It feeds the original content to the cryptographic verifier, so the APK passes muster, but it feeds potentially malicious code to the installer, so what actually gets put on your device and run need not be the legitimate application. Uh, the good news is Google has put out patches for these flaws, the bad news, of course, is it's going to take an unknown amount of time for those patches to percolate through the Android ecosystem into each handset vendor's firmware and onto your device. Yeah, that is a problem that Android has faced for a long time. And Google has made some strides in this problem by taking, uh, you know, large attack surface pieces of Android like Chrome out of the base operating system and moving it into the Play Store, which allows them to independently update it without device manufacturers and carriers being involved. Something like this, of course, is part of the core operating system. And uh, there's been some rumors that Google is working with their OEMs to say, uh, put in some new guidelines about, you know, how frequently they must update and how much time they have to get quick fixes out for critical issues, this kind of thing. But at the moment, uh, you can expect, especially if you have an Android budget device, that you're going to be uh, vulnerable to, for, to this for quite some time. If Google is preparing some guidelines for its OEMs, uh, you know, on how long you should take, this would be a good time to put the hammer down and get those updates flowing fast. As I said, this is very much cryptographic egg on face for Google. 
because this is the core of the validation process for applications. But if you stick to the Play Store, even though that means trusting Google, who are the people who made the coding errors in the first place, I think you should be okay because it's unlikely, since Google now knows about these particular bugs, that they will let in an APK that actually contains malformed content of the sort that makes these attacks work. Well, uh, I'm sure that Google and hopefully Amazon and other Android uh, vendors are on top of that and keeping close eye for us because there's not a lot a user can do from their handset to necessarily know other than to only acquire apps from trusted sources and not be downloading them from random websites. And if there's one bit of advice that I would love to see Google take on board, I think that not only should they do cryptographic verification of each file inside the Android package archive, they should actually do a cryptographic verification of the entire file. Because that's the problem here. You can take the APK file, the zip file, unpackage it, and repackage it, for example, with the files in a different order, with different metadata, times, dates, different compressions, all that sort of stuff. And provided you put the same files back into a different container, it will still be tolerated cryptographically. But of course, that assumes that the metadata will actually have no effect on the correct unpacking of the archive. And as both of these bugs show, that is not the case. So as a user, it turns out that, uh, you know, in addition to all this cryptographic signature stuff, even if I'm getting an app from someone that I know I'm getting it from, and I believe it to truly be from the vendor that created the app, even then, apparently, there's still potential information leakage and bugs and things. Uh, there was a story this week about Tumblr on iPhones this time instead of Androids or, you know, Apple mobile devices logging into their accounts using HTTP instead of HTTPS. Is this hopeless? I mean, are users stranded? Can they ever really depend on securely communicating from a mobile app? That does seem to be a rather spectacular blunder, does it not, Chester? You know, oh dear, we accidentally forgot the S from HTTPS. It's only one tiny little letter. Uh, it, just anybody sitting around at a, at a coffee shop or anybody nearby your computer, if you're on open Wi-Fi, would be able to see the stuff that you were sending back. And I thought that we'd kind of got this problem licked as a side effect of FireSheep, which was a couple of years ago, um, bringing to our attention the problems of websites that exchange personally identifiable information not using HTTPS. So yes, it does indeed sound like the sort of blunder that should definitely not have happened. Do you know how it came about that Tumblr left the encryption off? No, I'm not privy to that. I mean, I've seen this type of situation in a lot of testing environments where a lot of times app developers and testers will disable HTTPS so that they can ensure that everything is working in the plane the way it should and then figure, oh, you know, before we ship the product, we'll just flip the switch to turn on the S. Uh, seems to be a rather bad idea. I don't know if that's what happened here, though. It seems as though a better approach would be to make sure that the back end could never accept an unencrypted connection, which would mean that even if you did accidentally ship a buggy app, or if somebody tried to force the app down to HTTP with some kind of a man-in-the-middle of an attack, then the back end wouldn't actually accept those connections. Well, it kind of relates in a way to, you know, just generalized stuff that companies need to deal with even when they're not making mistakes. I was uh, reading a press release from Nintendo, so I guess there's this club Nintendo thing that uh, game users of their uh, platform are able to create an account and maybe get some points and, you know, get bonus items for 
uh, Nintendo games and this kind of thing. And a whole bunch of accounts, tens of thousands of them, were compromised uh, over the summer in a big brute force attack. And in the, in the release from Nintendo, they're saying that it looks like the attackers were reusing usernames and passwords that were stolen from other compromised websites. Chester, are you suggesting that there may be people who use the same password on more than one account? <laughs> well, that's the thing, is that in this case, it sounds like Nintendo was innocent. They weren't hacked. They didn't necessarily do anything wrong. But they still noticed lots and lots of their users becoming compromised because of this bad practice and had to reach out to those users and try to protect them. How do we get past these lessons? I mean, it's impractical for most people to have hundreds of different passwords, which is what it would require for all the different sites that uh, a modern, uh, you know, smartphone, tablet, laptop-enabled, you know, 21st century person would need. Should companies be forcing users to change their passwords on websites every 90 days to avoid this? Is that what we're going to come down to? Because, I, you know, I don't see adoption of password managers really getting into the high percentages enough to really protect people. Perhaps one solution is for people to take stock of the sites that they have created passwords and accounts for and ask themselves, do they really need hundreds or thousands of different sites that they're going to be logging into? You know, so firstly, we could probably all slim down our digital lifestyles a little bit so that we didn't need thousands or hundreds of accounts and maybe we needed dozens. So, you know, with all these users using Google and Facebook accounts uh, as a federated login technique, you know, what are the kind of what are the benefits and pitfalls of that? Because I, I see a lot of people going, well, if I can't log in with my Facebook, then forget it. I'm just not going to use this site. Chester, yes, we've we've discussed this before, both on and off the podcast, haven't we? That it's a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. There's something appealing about taking a company that's got all the HTTPS in place, got decent security around their logins, perhaps got two-factor authentication, uh, uh, a good password recovery scheme and all of that stuff and just piggybacking on their authentication. And there's something appealing about that because, hey, it means you probably won't make a cryptographic blunder because you're following in the footsteps of experts. But the disadvantage is you're back to that one password compromises all. And you're also back to the problem that you may then inadvertently, by logging into one service, magically connect yourself to lots of other services effectively at the same time. So this presents a real increased risk of phishing, in my opinion. I mean, is there anything users can do about that, or is just avoiding federated authentication the best approach? Chester, I don't really have an answer to that. You really are on the horns of a dilemma with single sign-on. It's much more convenient. It's much more efficient. You can have a much more secure password and a stronger password backend. But as you say, you put yourself in harm's way because you're kind of automatically logged on to anything and everything all the time. So my gut feeling is that federated login or single sign-on is actually a bad idea. But the flip side of that is you're then relying on everybody who runs every web service that you want to be part of doing the cryptography perfectly. Yeah, I guess it's up to the individuals to decide, you know, which set of risks they're willing to take on. But I think many folks that are more security aware or security concerned will do what I've done and what a lot of people I know have done, which is you know, adopt one of these password managers, uh, log out of websites like LinkedIn and Facebook and Google every time I'm finished using them, and even implement a two-factor token solution to ensure that that password manager, which if it were compromised, you know, might unlock a lot of my accounts, uh, in and of itself also is as secure as I can make it. 
So the, the focus of the press and much of the security community will be on DEF CON and Black Hat, which are the two largest security conferences in North America. Uh, Black Hat begins at the end of July and wraps around into August along with DEF CON for the first weekend in August. So, you know, a lot of security researchers, a lot of companies uh, save their most groundbreaking bugs and flaws and vulnerabilities and research to disclose at these conferences. So we'll have a lot uh, coming to you on the chat chat from the conferences. We'll try to sort through the hype and the spectacle and, and get down to the truth. Uh, I'll, I'll be attending Black Hat and part of DEF CON this year, and uh, a lot of Sophos staff will be there as well. Come by our booth. I mean, we're going to have beer and stuff. And, you know, maybe, Doc, my understanding is we're going to have some, like, puzzles with prizes uh, for, you know, for the, the nerdy security people. And, you know, what, what are we going to have on, on, uh, on the table? Do not miss the Sophos puzzle. Uh, the good news is you don't have to be going to Black Hat to participate. We're going to publish it on nakedsecurity.sophos.com as well. So you can participate if you're away from Black Hat. If you are there, you may be able to go to the booth and get some hints from Chester. You won't have to come up with a brand new, previously undisclosed IE11 beta exploit to win the prize. It'll just be some good, clean fun um, and a little bit of lateral thinking a small amount of reversing, and uh, some cryptographic daring do. So uh, whether you're at Black Hat or you're just a naked security reader, be sure to check out the Sophos puzzle at the end of July. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to giving people some tips and getting to meet a lot of our listeners and readers because uh, we generally only interact with people via email. Oh, and Chester, the word on the street is that the prize that we're giving away at Black Hat for the Sophos puzzle is a 3D printer. So uh, since they make up what they're creating out layer upon layer upon layer, start thinking about layers upon layers upon layers when it comes to puzzles. That's a very thinly veiled hint. Uh, how come every time there's a cool prize, I never qualify to win one? I mean, I never get to win the prize when it's something cool like a 3D printer. But uh, nonetheless, we look forward to meeting you all. And uh, that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 113. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com and on RSS and on iTunes. And until next time, stay secure.